morning I want to zero in on love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You find it there in verse 5. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We all have a relationship with someone and relationships are messy. At some point, you hurt someone else or someone else hurts you. That's going to happen. When that happens, what do you do? Do you keep a record of how they have hurt you so that you can use it later on down the road? Or do you forgive and forget, reconcile and move on um, not keeping a record of those wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrong. Uh, some time ago, uh, a man uh, let me know that um, for about 10 years, he had been making a list of everything I said wrong and everything he thought I had done wrong. And I said, okay, well, that's good. If you'll meet with me, we'll work through that list. It took quite a while to work through that list. But the more I thought about the list itself, two things came to mind. First of all, nothing on the list was a revelation. You may be keeping a list of other people, your spouse, your parents, your school teacher, your boss. Nothing on the list is really a revelation. In other words, everybody knows we're imperfect. Everybody knows I mess up. Everybody knows I say things wrong. Everybody knows I have done things and do things wrong. It's not a disclosure. It's not a revelation of something that we didn't already know. So why, why are you bringing this up? Second, it's not Christ-like. Christ does not keep a record of our sins. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Praise God. We want to show people the grace of salvation. We want to extend to them that kind of mercy and forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. How can we get there? How can we do it like Christ? When people have hurt us, what do we do? Well, I came up with the term field of thoughts. I was thinking about my little league days. In little league, uh, I, I was second, a first baseman, pitcher, third baseman, and I can still remember hearing the coach on the sidelines, feel the ball, feel the ball. What does he mean? He doesn't mean just feel it. He means catch it, stop it, throw it, run with it. You're supposed to do stuff with that baseball. And that's what he meant by that term. Thoughts come into our heads all the time. I want you to think about how do you feel the thoughts when it's like a ball coming right in. Maybe evil thoughts, maybe good thoughts. We need to learn how to field the thoughts. We need to acknowledge them. We need to arrange them, file them somehow. And we need to, at times, assassinate them, kill them, destroy them, get rid of them. And that's the only way we're going to begin to practice a love that keeps no record of wrongs. First of all, let's think about just acknowledge the thoughts. Um, was counseling a lady one day that had been terribly abused and hurt. And I said, I, 
we need to get to the place where you forget the past. And she said, stop. I will never forget what he did to me. Don't tell me to forget it. I will never forget what he did to me. And you may have those kind of deep feelings as well. Someone has hurt you badly, abused you, and you just can't get those thoughts out of your head. How do you deal with that? Let me first of all begin to work you into acknowledge they're there and acknowledge why they're why, why they are there. One of the reasons is for discernment. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 10, 13, and 16. Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verse 10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. So you know the evil, bitter thoughts that are in your heart. The heart knows those things. Verse 13, Even in laughter the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. You've probably been in a party or a room where everybody's laughing, every, you're smiling, but inside you're in pain. These thoughts are there. Now, notice how the Proverbs go on to deal with some of this. Verse 16, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. God does not ask us to throw caution to the wind. God does not ask us to stop being prudent. So if you're having these thoughts of hurt and pain, even though you may have smiles on your face, even though everyone else might be laughing, God is not telling you that to be foolish. If someone has hurt you badly, you can still be cautious. That person, yes, may hurt you again. And you need to be cautious about those kind of things. God is not asking us to throw that kind of discernment to the side. We need discerning thoughts. And our experiences, uh, the older we live, make us wiser and discerning in situations and with certain people. So our goal is not to, to throw out discernment. But our, one of our goals is to throw out victim thinking and to throw out condemnation thinking. First of all, think about as I acknowledge the thoughts that are in my head, I need to throw out victim thinking. Victim thinking is that kind of thinking where you say, I'm the product of somebody else's actions. I'm the victim. I can't do nothing. You know, but get hurt, it seems. Throw that out. That's foolishness. That's ridiculous. In Christ, we are not victims. Why? Because we have a God that can take even the bad, evil, difficult stuff and turn it for our good. Romans 8, 28, you know that. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So we never end up being the victim. Rather, the Scripture goes on to say, in Christ we are overwhelmingly conquerors. We are not victims, we're victors. We're victors in Christ. Because Christ always makes it happen that way. We will never end up being the victim. Why? Because Christ became the victim for us. He 
got on the cross to be the victim, to be the receiver of God's wrath so that we could be victorious. We could be overwhelmingly conquerors. So we've got to throw out the victim kind of thinking. And then the second kind of thinking we've got to throw out is condemning thinking, where we're condemning other people. Um, That's not our place to do. Uh, We're not helpless. We're not helpless victims. We don't need to be involved in condemnation of others since that's typically not our place. So let's start arranging our thoughts. Two categories. A discerning thought or a condemning thought. A concerning judgment or discerning, excuse me, judgment or a condemning judgment. Those are kind of the judgment categories we have for ourselves. It's okay to have the discerning judgment. It's not good to have the condemning judgment. For example, let's suppose you have a trouble you have trouble with anger. You're watching a television show. You begin to see this kind of repeated theme in, in this series you're watching that it's always about anger. Somebody's always blowing up at somebody else. So at some point you have a discerning thought. You say, you know, it's probably just not wise for me to watch this television show or to watch this series because it makes me mad. And I have a tendency to get mad already. I don't need to do this. And so you use your wisdom, your discernment, and you turn the television off. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of people then, though, sometimes move from discerning judgments to condemning judgments. You've not done anything wrong. You've actually been pretty wise when you've had this discerning judgment to turn the television off because it's provoking you to anger. But then you meet a friend, and they said they were watching that show. How, hey, did you watch it? You know, you compare notes. No, I turned it off. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. And the other person goes on and on about it. And at some point you say, and you should turn it off too. Wait, wait, wait. Now you've moved from discerning to condemning. Not only was it wise, for, if it was wise for me to turn it off, it's probably wise for you to turn it off. You could have said that. But when you start condemning them, you should turn it off. When there's no standard in the scripture that says they must turn it off, then you begin to condemn them, hold them accountable, keep a record of this being a wrong action on their part, expecting them. Let me give you an example of it in scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. One of the big problems of the Pharisees. Matthew 7, 1 through 6, Jesus says, classic passage you've heard. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And he tells us the context in verse 2 that he's talking about condemning judgments, not discerning judgments. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. In other words, not talking about God's standard. He's not talking about God's law. He's talking about a judgment that's built around your standard. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Um, The problem this passage is addressing is you look at other people and you see something that you think is wrong and then you start condemning them based on your standard of measure. 
So you see that this person is watching this television show that really makes you mad, and you try to pluck it out of their life and condemn them if they continue to watch it. Who created that standard? You did. At first it was discerning. Now it's a condemning judgment. God says, don't do that. He says, if you start judging people that way, condemning people based on your standard, then I'll flip the tables on you and I'll judge you based on your standard. And it's not going to be pretty. Because your standard's imperfect. It doesn't work. Only God's standard is working. We've got to learn the difference between a discerning thought and a condemning thought. We've got to hold on to the discerning thoughts, but we've got to throw out the condemning thoughts. Uh, it's not gracious. It's not like Christ. Uh, it's, it's, you're seeing it on the TVs today or in different places, people blowing up uh, with one another, uh, even, even in mask wearing. It's discernment, people say. Great discernment to wear the mask. But then when you condemn somebody for not wearing the mask, see, you've moved from discerning judgment to condemning judgment, and people have gotten into fights and shot people over it. Based on whose standard? Your standard. Man's standard. We move from discerning to condemning, and it's then we keep, well, why did you do that? Well, it's wrong. Who said it's wrong? Well, we did. And you start keeping a record of wrongs. I want to get to the place of not keeping a record of wrongs. Showing people love. Showing people grace. We have to distinguish these things in order to get there. Well, you say, well, David, some people need condemning. Yes, you're right. There does need to be condemnation at times. And that's why God has raised up elders, rulers, leaders, and courts the condemnation is to occur and on that level. It's not to occur on the individual level. But people go to courts uh, that God has raised up. Um, and there are times condemnation needs to take place. And it does take place through the courts God has raised up. Who are supposed to be uh, managing life, honoring the good, condemning the bad. Um, all right, so let's just consider our thoughts. As you think of your spouse, your children, your parents, your boss, whoever, even your preacher, you know, what are your thoughts? Are they discerning thoughts or are they condemning thoughts? Um, how can you condemn somebody that Christ has died for? That Christ has already purchased with his own blood? See, when we go to that condemning side of thinking, we begin to fight against God. We need to have the court systems that God has raised up to really think through condemnation when it should occur and when it shouldn't occur in this life. Our job is to have discerning thoughts. And many times we go too far with that and start condemning. So when we get into condemnation, I want us to learn to assassinate, kill those thoughts um, <clears throat> instead of holding on to them. Uh, because if you hold on to them, you become a bitter person. And a bitter person ends up in the pits of hell, turning away from God. Let me show you that. Hebrews chapter 12, 14 through 17. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. <coughs> Describes here... 
uh, Esau as, as the example. And because Esau is in the passage as the example, I think the interpretation is a bitter person, not just a bitter motive. Because motive is not the example. It's a person that's the example. Look at Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So this pursuit of holiness in relationship, peace in relationship, is crucial. Uh, It's characteristic of those who are going to heaven. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. So he's the example of that root of bitterness that defiles, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. We need to pursue peace with one another. We need to destroy those bitter, evil, condemning thoughts that we have towards others. uh, So that that peace can be maintained. Uh, It's a great warning here against being that bitter person who's... I describe a bitter person as this. Somebody who wants to hold on to a grudge more than they want to hold on to God. Are you willing to turn loose of your grudge against another person? That desire in you to see them condemned? Are you willing to turn that loose in order to follow God? To pursue peace with them? to pursue love with them, to no longer hold them accountable or keep a record of their wrongs. Uh, Turning loose of grudges keeps us from being bitter people. Well, how do we do that? We've got to learn biblical forgiveness. We've got to not only field our thoughts, which we've been talking about how to do, but we've got to get to where we are forgiving the trespasser. The person who's trespassed against us. How do we forgive them? And you're not going to get biblical forgiveness until, first of all, you realize it's a priority. As Christians, we must do that. Just like in 1 Corinthians 13, this is a love Christians have. We keep no record of wrong. It's a priority for us to forgive. Second, forgiveness is a promise we make, which is different from kind of just overlooking, kiss and make up kind of attitude. It's a promise we make, and then based on that promise, we begin to practice a reconciled, peaceful relationship with others. First of all, I want you to see it's a a priority. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, because it's expressly commanded here, and I want to just kind of unpack this a little bit. Ephesians 4, verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. These are all commands. Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the priority. That's the command. You and I must forgive one another. How? Just as God in Christ 
also has forgiven you. So there's, there's our standard. There's our command. Um, I say it's a priority because it's a command of God. God wants us to keep His laws. He wants us to keep His word. It makes it very clear this is a priority. You know the verse in Matthew chapter 5 where it says, If you come to worship and there you remember that you have offended someone, it says go and get straight with that person and then come back to worship. That's a priority. That means reconciliation with someone else was more important than worship. And I thought worship was the most important. I mean, that's where God elevates this reconciliation to. So that's Matthew 5. If you went to Matthew 18, it says, if you realize uh, someone has offended you, so Matthew 5, excuse me, you were offending them. Matthew 18, they are offending you. It says, then you go to that brother. And if you explain it to the brother, you win that brother, great. Reconciliation then should occur whether you're the offender or someone else is the offender. It's a priority. Doesn't matter who did it, who caused the hurt. You're supposed to be running to each other to pursue peace, to be reconciled, to forgive one another. It's that kind of priority that we should rush to living at peace with one another. Now, once you get there with one another, forgive one another. Ephesians 4, verse 32 just as God in Christ has forgiven us. So let's get there and forgive. How? Just as God in Christ forgives us. How does God in Christ forgive us? That's the question. Several places in the Bible. But I'll uh, give you one. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 17. So you know the verse. Hebrews 10, verse 17. Description of the way God forgives us. Verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How does God in Christ forgive us? By remembering no more the sins that we've committed, the lawless deeds that we forget, have committed. He says, I will remember them no more. How do we, how do we forgive people like that? Remembering their sins no more. I can't get it off of my mind. I can't forget how I've been hurt, how I've been abused. How can I not remember? And yet you're telling me I have to forgive someone like Christ and the way Christ does it is he remembers the hurt, the sin. No more? Really? I don't see how that's even possible. Think about the word remember. What does it mean? If you look it up in Scripture, the way God uses it, well, I'll give you a few references. Look at Luke 22, verse 61. Here, Peter is using the word remember in a very popular uh, occasion. Luke 22, verse 61. The Lord turned and he looked at Peter. This is after Peter had denied him three times. The rooster had crowed. The Lord turned, looked at Peter, and Peter remembered. What was he remembering? The word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. What Peter was doing 
is the opposite of what God is asking us to do. He, he turned and he, he called attention to his sin. He remembered that I am accountable for denying Jesus. Jesus said I was going to do it. I said I wouldn't do it. I remember all of that. One other place. Look at uh, 3 John. Doesn't have any chapter, so it's chapter 1. 3 John, verse 9 and 10, says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will remember his deeds. My translation says, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. In other words, Diotrephes was a bad dude, and he was doing bad stuff. And John says, if I get to come to town, I'm going to take care of him. I will call attention to his deeds. I won't let him get away. I will call a court in session, and we will deal with the Eotrephes. But there's the word. The word where you find it is to call attention to. That's what it means to remember. I will remember his sins no more. I will call attention to his sins no more. Um, the, the term is... No record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record. That's, that's an accounting term. It means I won't keep it on the ledger. I won't write it down. I won't keep a record of it, an accounting of it anymore. So to forgive is to no longer keep it on the books. In other words, it will no longer be in the book as evidence against this person. I'm not going to keep it that way. I'm not going to call attention to it that way. Because you know God, He doesn't forget. When God says, in Christ He forgives us, He remembers our sins no more, it doesn't mean God loses His memory. It doesn't mean God somehow can no longer remember what you did or He did. That, that doesn't mean, that doesn't, that's not what it means. What it means is he's no longer going to use the sin against you. He's not going to put it on the books as something that you are accountable for. And the reason you're not accountable for it, this is great news. Why? Because in Christ, Christ came to pay for my sins, your sins. Christ says to God the Father, give me all of David Roundtree's sins. I'm saying yes. He says, let me pay for them. Yes. Let me stay on the cross till they're completely paid for. Yes. Now, for God to bring them up again would be unethical. Why? Because they've been paid for. It's inadmissible. It's unethical to bring my sins back up and hold me accountable because Christ has already paid the price. Hallelujah. That's the good, and that's the way God says, that's the way I want you to forgive others. 
I want you to forgive them as people whose sins are paid for by my blood. It's inadmissible for you to bring them back up and to hold them accountable when you have forgiven them. So forgiveness needs to move from a priority to a promise. I promise. We should teach our kids this when they would fight with one another. Okay, now, you know, love each other, hug each other, kiss each other. Now make a promise. Say you forgive each other. What, is a forgive, what does forgiveness mean? It means you promise not to bring this back up as a condemning thought. As condemning evidence against your brother. You've promised. It'd be unethical now to bring it back up. You're breaking your own promise. You're using something that's been paid for, dealt with. So you can't bring it back up. Now, interesting. Once you put that into the um, inadmissible evidence category, your brain starts to not remember it. Why? Our brains are always spinning trying to solve problems. You realize that. And that's why when you wake up in the morning, sometimes you've, you've ah, I now I know what to do. Because your brain's been spinning. Trying to always solve these problems that come in. But when the problem is solved, your brain starts slowing down on that one. Okay? I can store it. It goes into the archives. Because, why? Because there's closure. When there's closure on a matter, you don't have to keep thinking about it. It's done. It's not that you don't remember it. It's not that you've got amnesia. But I don't need the evidence anymore because it's closed. The matter's closed. Made a promise. I wouldn't use it. It's inadmissible evidence. So you begin to see I'm forgiving someone just as God in Christ has forgiven me. And I'm no longer holding them accountable for those actions because I have promised not to use that action as something I will bring up again, keep it in the ledger, and use against them. That's the kind of forgiveness God is asking us to do. And it starts getting us in our heads at peace and starts bringing us to peace with one another. That's the practice we need to have. You say, well, David, I think I get that, but I still... I still don't feel like forgiving them. You see, you can make a promise whether you feel like it or not. And then you can keep a promise whether you feel like it or not. I mean, I can make a promise I'm going to take my wife out to dinner tonight. I don't feel like that, really. But I could promise it. When I get home after I've promised it, hey, what's, what's for dinner tonight? She said, you promised to take me out to dinner. And I'm thinking in my mind, I don't feel like going out to dinner tonight. So I didn't feel like to begin with. I don't feel like it now. But I'd be a foolish man not to take my wife out to dinner. After I promised it. You can keep a promise. Whether you feel like it or not. So you discern the thoughts. You promise forgiveness. And then you start practicing it. And you realize, I don't have to feel like it to keep my promise to pursue peace and holiness 
my ethics are involved here, not just someone else's. Pursue peace and holiness, which is what the Lord does with us. That's the forgiveness God is asking us to keep. It's not kiss and make up. See, that's just overlooking something for a while. But God is asking us to keep no record of wrongs. To love others like He loves us. You know, the worst thing about a fire, if you've been through a, a home fire or something like that, is, is the loss of personal records. Say, so those are not really replaceable. God has taken the record of our sins. He's not only burned them up, but he's plunged them beneath the blood of Christ to where they're irretrievable. Can't be used against us again. When we get that, we extend that kind of love to others. I know there are people in this room that said, boy, I wish I could have that kind of forgiveness. My life has been such a mess. I wish there was somebody who would love me without keeping a record of my wrongs, without bringing those things up. Jesus is that one. That's the way Jesus loves. If you don't know that love, boy, you want to. It's so sweet, so awesome. I'm not going to stand before God in heaven and God's going to say, wait, David, let's, let's talk about some of your sins. Not going to happen because he's promised me. Those sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And that's the kind of love he wants us to show others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and your love that covers a multitude of sins. We're all desperately in need of a God who keeps no record of wrongs because the, the sins, the wrongs have been paid for. And now they're inadmissible before your court. Father, for those here who have not received that kind of grace and love, draw them to yourself. May they see your beauty, your love, and your grace today. Give them faith to trust you and repentance to turn from sin. Father, for all of us who've hurt one another at some point of the time or the other, and all of us who've been hurt badly, let us pursue peace with one another. Let us learn to keep no record of wrongs. Let us start each day with fresh mercy and grace. We need it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.